Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Thank you to everyone who has helped to keep this podcast going, and also to all of those who have written in some wonderful letters of support and great feedback about how these episodes and how the show has been helping to support you and those you love through this time and not feeling alone. And a lot of people say that it's sort of their weekly therapy, which is lovely. So I wanted to make sure to mention the names of the people who on Patreon are giving $10 or more per month to Anne and Richard and Brianna, Camus, Christina, Corey, Jake, James, Katrina, Lillian, Linda, Maureen, Miss Nanya, Peter and Cynthia, Scott, and Sylvia. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Stacy Aviva Flint is back on our show today. She's a former follower of the International Churches of Christ, and it was an organization that was run by a man named Kip McKean. He's still around. This group of churches is not connected with the mainline Churches of Christ. I spoke with her a while ago, actually, and after we talked, as it happens with a number of people, there was a part of her story I wanted to make sure to find out a little bit more about. And yes, she has happily moved on, and she's been raising her daughter and working and has converted to a different religion. And still, though, there is the memory of her experiences and how they affected her and her traumas from her time, especially, I think, as we talked about it, in Africa, when she was sent as a missionary for this particular organization. She didn't know what was in store for her there. She mentioned it briefly during her original interview with me, and we didn't have enough time to kind of get into the experience of being sent across the world totally unprepared for what she would actually experience there. So today you get to hear more from Stacy, where we explore that time in her life. It's a really interesting and at times pretty shocking story. Here's Stacy now. I am really happy to have Stacy Aviva on the show again, um, because after we finished talking the first time, there were some pieces that because of time, we needed to kind of rush through, and it seemed like there was just there was more to those stories. So there are these moments in our lives that sometimes we we remember in a particular way. Uh, it becomes a blur, as it was. It felt like almost like a different part of our lives. Um, we almost don't recognize that part of our lives. I think we all have had those experiences. And then there are other times that you, you remember things you get glimpses or are photos from that time and you remember a lot of the, the experiences that you had and the feelings that you were having when those photos were taken. And, um, and I want to thank you also for sending me some pictures from that time, which is really helpful. Uh, and so we will definitely post some of them for, for the listeners. I'm curious if we can go back to when you were talking about your time in the ICC and specifically when you were in Africa. And I'm, I'm wondering about how long that was and how, what age you were when you went there and just sort of getting into more of the experiences because it was so powerful when you were talking about it. Okay, so just tell us a little bit of, about that experience. So um, you're, I'm just going to answer your questions and then go into that. Yeah. I was 19 years old and I was just finishing up my freshman year of college and um, I was on a full scholarship at, at my university um, and I was chosen to go on this mission team to Africa. And so that meant that I put my schooling on hold and um, quickly applied to another school, an American university in Canada called ASIU, American International University, which I believe is 
is or was based in San Francisco, but had a branch in Kenya. And I did my best to try to kind of switch myself to that school. Mm. Um, so, was, yeah, I was 19. Right before I got there, I spent some time in New York City um, trying to get my visa, trying to get the correct shots to to go to a you know, third world country where there were some some medical, um, you know, uh, precautions that needed to be taken. So you asked me about my age. So Mm -hmm. I was there when I, beginning age 19, and I stayed till I was 21 years old. Okay. Okay. And then while you were there also, what were the locations that you were staying in? I was in Nairobi, Kenya. So I was in the very urban um, area. All right. So then I'm wondering also, before you got there, what was your prep? How did they prepare you for what you were going to be doing there and how to approach people? What was some of the training? Do you remember? There was no training. Oh, wow. There was no training. Um, I remember being in in Cincinnati, which is my hometown, and um, getting a call saying, you know, you need to be in, in, where are you? And I'm like, what do you mean? You need to be in New York City. You know, all the rest of the team is, is is here and we're meeting. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm still in college. I was thinking that you guys were going this summer and I could finish up my first year of school and not miss any classes. And they're like, no, you need to be here. I think they gave me maybe two or three weeks. So I'm running around trying to um, talk to each of my professors. Excuse me, I need to move to Africa. Can I like, you know do my work via correspondence and send it to you um, and trying to arrange financial aid moving and, 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 and enrolling in another school in another country, getting a, a visa, all these, all these things. So um, I'm just told that I need to be there. I don't know how I'm going to get there. So I had an apartment sale and I sold everything. And I could only bring two, they told me I could only bring two suitcases. That's all I could bring. And it was kind of like the, it was the mantra in the, of the group of, you know, you know, you're really a sold out disciple when you have the two suitcase challenge. So I sold everything that I had that was worth anything as a 19 year old college student, um, asked for money from my congregation, saved money from, you know, the little jobs I had. And I bought like a, it was was about $1,200 plane ticket to Kenya, that was kind of one of these tickets that after a while you, it was an open ticket, but I think it was open only for one year. Okay. So you'll notice that I told you my story. Uh-huh. I was, it was two years. Yeah. And by that, I told, I told them, I'm sorry, I've got to go home. And I just had, they I had no more money to get home. And so luckily they were, they had mercy on me and let that open ticket, you know, bring back. But the thing is that I never had any training. So I took a bus to New York City. I did not even know where I was going to stay when I got to New York City. So I remember coming into Port Authority with my two suitcases, looking around. um, And of course, going into New York City in 1989, looking around. Of course, my bags were taken. I had this whole ordeal, you know, um, being shaken down by someone in New York City and a cab driver getting my bags back. So it was a very, that was a very funny story. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm glad it was funny because it sounds yeah. stressful. <laughs> but, okay, I'm glad it, it had a happy ending to it. I yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good, good. Okay. So wow. I get to New York City and I'm basically homeless. And basically I have to kind of wait for a message every day whose couch I'm sleeping on. And sometimes this would last a day. Sometimes this would be for a couple of weeks that I could stay with a person. And sometimes it, it would be longer, but I never quite knew where I was going to be spending the night. Right. Um, so I basically was homeless in New York city. Um, there's a story that is very embarrassing, but it's true. It helped. It happened to me. I remember that I was given an address to go to in Brooklyn. And when I got there, no one was home. So I waited for hours and, and still no one came home. Oh, wow. And it got to a point where I had to use the bathroom. Um, 
and I was stuck. Finally, I got someone to let me inside of the building and I got to the person's door. But the only thing I could do was just stand outside the door. Of course, there were no cell phones in 1989. Um, I tried to knock on other people's doors to let me in. I just need to use the restroom and to no avail. And I remember having on a, a long trench coat um, and I'm sitting in front of this person's door. And finally, I have to urinate on myself, spread out the coat um, and wait for them to come home. And it was the most humiliating thing to, first of all, meet a person I'd never met before that I'm spending the night with right. and saying, I'm sorry, I need to, can you, I, I need to clean up the mess that I've made here because I waited for so long that I had used the bathroom. And it's, it was, it was the most humiliating thing. And I think that's, Something that I, I've experienced often in this group is that you were constantly put into situations where you were humiliated and your self-esteem was torn down and you were constantly being asked to ingratiate yourself to new people. But it was also um, a way of breaking down boundaries um, and making you emotionally and psychologically um, weakened and vulnerable at all times. And so it took me many years to get to know someone in a natural course of events, which was very, very different from, for me because I came into this group at 16 years old and I stayed till I was 20, 34. So this was the normal course of life. Okay. So there's so many things I want to ask you about this. And, and it sounds like then we could delve into more of your time in Nairobi, but there are other experiences that are certainly worth talking about here just to have you be removed from kind of a mainstream existence, college, you know, doing your thing in an environment that's familiar to you, suddenly in, as you said, Port Authority. I mean, so incredibly overwhelming, just sensorily incredibly overwhelming uh, and unknown. And then going to a house, having someone not be there um, to greet you, to make it seem okay to welcome you into this new place and into this new existence and that you have to fend for yourself. You were saying that you would wait for a call each day to tell you where you were going to be staying that night. Who was the call from? Um, I don't remember who the person was who would, would call me or I would meet them or they would tell me when I went to services because we had so many meetings and your, your life is really inundated with going to a lot of meetings. All I knew is that when my plane took off to go to Kenya, I don't even remember if I was on a flight with other people who were from my team. I think I, I, think I was. I think I was because I remember flying in and it was the middle of the night. And one of our team members was, um, they were married. One of the, the man was Nigerian and the wife was Ecuadorian. And because he was Nigerian and Kenya had some issues with Nigerians, I remember that he was stopped in the airport and interrogated for hours. And we had to wait for him while um, he went through this interrogation. And we had our people kind of come and try to, to extract him out of that situation. So I came in the middle of the night. I did not know when I got there what the arrangements were. We left the airport and we were taken to a very seedy hotel. And um, myself and another woman were to share this hotel room. In all honesty, I thought that this is something that they had uh, arranged for us. Needless to say, it wasn't a week. It was a couple days later that I was asked to pay my hotel room fee. And I told them, I said, I have. I came here because you guys told me to come. I have a hundred dollars in my in my pocket. That's after living in New York City for three months and trying to work and live. And I had a hundred dollars. I'm thinking when I got there, they would put me up somewhere, feed me. Right. And I remember being humiliated. Why did you just come with a hundred dollars? What are you doing? What did you think was gonna happen? And I'm like, I'm 19. I don't know. My existential existence was on the line. So not only was I supposed to 
go out every day and meet complete strangers and convince them to come to our location and meet these Americans to go to their church services. But I also had to find a way to pay that hotel bill every night. And they were asking for a nightly payment. So I would go out to missionize every day and take a bag with me of anything I thought was worthy of selling. American clothes, jewelry, anything that I had um, on me. And often I had to make the decision whether I was going to use what money I had to pay my hotel bill that night or if I was going to eat. And so a lot of my incentive for inviting people to our church services was I had started to learn the culture enough that I realized that people were so friendly. If I stopped to talk to them, they might ask me to sit down and have a cup of tea and might buy me a donut or something. And that's how I made it through um, my day. By the time I came back to America, I was maybe 120, 125 pounds. I had had malaria. I had had, and I had parasites that were in my system for 10 years. And I had not been to a doctor in I never saw a doctor why, you know, except for when I got really sick there. Mm-hmm. So I was in a constant state of how was I going to live and found out eventually that the reason why the hotel where I was staying seemed so strange, but it was actually a brothel. Ah. And American and European men come to this, this location to meet women, female workers. And, and so I was approached many times. Um, and while the senior um, ministers who were being paid by the organization had money and they were able to move to a, a nice hotel up the road where, you know, international hotel, myself and my friend, who had very little money, were stuck basically in a, in a, in a hotel that was a brothel. So I had to support myself every day, try to fend off people who thought I was a prostitute <laughs> and recruit for this organization. Okay. Wow. Okay. So not only did you not get training, but there there was no information given to you ahead of time about the money that you would need to bring, what the expectation was going to be, about how you were going to have to pay your own way, you were going to need to buy your own food, et cetera, et cetera. And so to be just thrown into this situation in another country and also be staying somewhere where you had to, you know, avoid having attention over and over again that you didn't want to have. Of the, when you were saying that there were 11 of us on this mission team, were all 11 of you in the same situation or were some of you seniors who were getting paid? There was the main, two main couples that um, were paid staff of the church. There was one couple that um, sometime into it asked to work full time for for the organization. Um, there was one gentleman who was a pharmacist and he went out and um, they, they were expected to get their own job. And so he went out and found a job as a pharmacist. Um, and um, there was another girl who um, was very talented, spoke many, several different languages, and she actually got a job at the United Nations, um, the UN, uh, trying to trip translation. So that was very impressive. Mm-hmm. I brought in another girl who was a nurse. Eventually, she came in some months afterwards. Um, and then a couple of months later, I was able to, when the fall started, I was able to go to my school that I had enrolled in. And um, then I had a, you know, a room on campus and I could eat at school. And, okay, in Africa, you could yeah. enroll. And what school was it that you were enrolled in? USIU, United States International University. Okay, so then you were taking classes there and then also still on this mission? Yeah, yeah. That took me from living kind of where everybody else was. So then I was staying kind of outside the city on, on this campus. And so then I would have to come into the city every day to meet up with the group. 
So while you were on your campus, were you allowed to interact with the people there or socialize with the people there? That was the great thing is that while I was on campus, it was like I was a normal mm. student and I could interact with people. And um, that was a time of amazing respite for me. Um, but, you know, when it was time for a meeting or whatever, mm-hmm. of course, I had to go down and meet everyone. And And again, they would expect, too, that I would be proselytizing on this campus and bringing people um, with me. But uh, that was my times of normality. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there was, I'm sure, in a lot of groups, the, there is an expectation that every environment, every holiday, every family thing, every whatever, positive, negative, funeral, wedding, what we're just going into the grocery store is an opportunity for proselytizing. I was always, you know, um, trying to bring people uh, and kind of after I kind of exhausted all of my, um, you know, the people who were there, I, I kind of stopped and kind of would, um, re- you know, move to just people I would meet on the street or the buses, and things of that nature. Okay. So at the time when you were talking about the ICOC, so that was under Kip, right? Kip McKean? Okay. So was he, you think, calling the shots? I mean, I'm sure he sort of had final say on everything, but... Um, was he in touch with the people who were running this mission? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, if anything, he was in closer touch with them than the people in the United States. Because at that time, there was um, there was only about a handful, maybe a dozen uh, of world sector leaders, they were called. Okay. And they were over regions of the world. So Africa and in Asia and Europe. And so, it was, yeah, just about a handful. Mm-hmm. And so our world sector leader oversaw um, something called, the, at that time it was called ACES. And that was the Middle East, Africa. And um, somehow it was controlled by this gentleman who was in New York. And so Kip was kind of his main person. And then this person um, kind of was over the person who was in Africa. So I, we were about maybe, I was only about three people, three or four people removed from Kit McKean. So our, our orders were coming really from him. And he would fly in. Um, and usually they would meet the kind of the hub in Africa was South Africa. It's the South Africa church um, was the first uh, community that was there. So usually, you know, if there was a big meeting, then they would all go down to South Africa. Okay. And so did you have an opportunity to meet Kip? Um, I have met Kip in person, um, just not, not at, while I was in Africa. I, I met Kip in, in the States. I, I want to be able to go back to your experience in Africa, but I'm curious first about what your impressions were of Kip. He was very charismatic. He was very confident um, and seemed like he really, really, you know, loved God. And that was so um, um, impressive to me. Years later, as things went on, I started to get a little bit more suspicious, like, ooh, the the, the hubris of this guy. Um, why does he have to shout um, all the time? Why does it seem so military, how he speaks or, or, or thinks? Um, and, um, and just started to get just a little bit uncomfortable with his lifestyle, which was, it always had to be, in LA, it always had to, he had to, he had to live in the best neighborhoods. He had to send his school, his children to Harvard and, and all of these things. And, um, if you were kind of on his, his tier, you know, people who were, um, in leadership, like I eventually, you know, became in, in, in leadership, you were expected to, to be around and to, bring people into the organization that were on your level. And so when you didn't, you were criticized. Why are you bringing someone who's not beautiful? If you're beautiful, why aren't you bringing beautiful people? If you're not smart, why aren't you bringing smart people? Why aren't you bringing rich people? And so there was this put down of, of, of people, people who were um, mentally challenged, people who were physically challenged, people who were, who were poor. Um, they were at a different, different, level 
Um, and so there was a segregating of, of people. And so you always wanted to try to make sure you were in the, in the pool where you were going to get the good attention and you were going to be um, favored because Lord forbid you fell out of favor and you had a mental problem or you, um, you didn't cut it. Um, you would be severely, you know, chastised and, and depending on how, how high up you were in leadership, you could be publicly shamed and, and, and humiliated. Um, there's a lot of public shaming and, and, and humiliating. At, at different meetings or services or in, where was there this public shaming? Um, it could happen anywhere. It could happen in mass meetings. It could happen in small meetings, one-on-one. I remember distinctively in Africa, um, uh, one of the homes where uh, many of the women lived together, um, there was a, a Bible study. We would have um, private Bible studies with people to kind of indoctrinate them into our way of thinking. And I don't know if it was someone that we that wasn't yet a member that we were trying to convince or if it was a member who had been found to have violated some principle. Um, but I remember this, this staying up late at night. Usually these, if someone wanted to talk to you, it was late at night. Mm. And so these late at night meetings where you were, you were just talked to for hours and hours and hours trying to convince you of, of something or to interrogate you on something. And I just remember this one time was someone just slung a Bible across the room at someone. And I was like, this is an act of violence. Why are, why are our Bibles being thrown at people? And so I was, I was very compliant because I was scared. Um, I, I came to be afraid of my, my physical safety. So I never, uh, you know, was going to disobey because it was keeping depriving you of sleep, yelling at you and, and then here are the people starting throwing, throwing objects at people. Wow. And it's a very common tactic that's used to do this kind of public shaming. I mean, in certain environments, yeah, people are physically hurt. Um, and it's really shocking to hear that they threw a Bible at people uh, and that somehow that was okay. But um, maybe it's sort of from the phrase to throw the book at you. Uh, but who knows? But still, not not at all okay. And also behavior modification, because then people are going to want to stay in line, and they're not going to want to have this happen to them. And and you know, going back to this idea of you know the bright and the beautiful, or the wealthy, or whoever that kept really favored and brought in. I mean, that's where it does break down, and that's where it doesn't seem at all very spiritual anymore. Um, and that people who have deficits of any sort, or just don't please kip or feed or you know feed his ego in that same way um are going to be ostracized or put down the us versus them it's so it's so interesting because at first like you were saying you were drawn into to his persona and then you were able to start seeing certain things and then that's when it it broke down during the time that you were in africa were you still even with all of the day-to-day -day struggles, were you still feeling devoted to the group and to the message or were there moments where you were starting to wonder? I would go back and forth, but by the time that I left, I was quite bitter, um, especially uh, how sick I had gotten and um, uh, feeling as if, if no one um, really cared whether I lived or died um, because I was, I, I was sure that I was uh, was dying and was going to die. And I felt very hurt um, by um, just no one seeming to care um, about me uh, or even try to help me get in touch with my family in the States. Um, it was a, a couple in the church who were fairly new to the church themselves that really took me under their wing, paid my hospital bill um, that I was very grateful for. I don't think I remember any leader of the church coming to even visit. Um, I started to become, even before then, I started to get bouts of um, 
of a, I guess you would just call it depression, where I couldn't get out of the bed for days at a time because I was just so um, overwhelmed and tired. And I remember one of these episodes, um, I had um, lost all of my scholarship and all of my ability to stay at my university um, because the I finally found out that they couldn't transfer Pell Grants and things internationally. So um, I had to leave school and I ended up staying in a YWCA coming back down to the city. And I remember um, being in a, one room, it was a bunk, bunk beds and a girl stayed on the bottom bunk bed um, who was a, uh, an, an Eritrean refugee because it was during the time of uh, the Eritrean Ethiopian war starting. And I stayed in I was on the top bunk and I remember one of the women from the church came by to check on me because I hadn't been at services for, I'd miss a couple, a couple services, maybe one or two. And uh, I'm, I'm lying in bed. I'm really sick. I'm tired. I'm trying to tell her that, man, I just really don't feel well. And I've been in bed for a while. And she starts to interrogate me and to ask me, well, have you been involved in these sexual sins? Have you been seeing anyone? And, and I'm going, I've been in my bed. I, I can't, I have, but it went on for so long and she would just kind of keep coming back to it that by the end of it, I was not sure whether I had or not. So it was like this implanting of false memories where it took me a while to to try to realize that, no, I hadn't done anything. I had not been with anyone but really I was not by the time she finished with me I wasn't sure right I I was it was pretty much like yeah I probably have I just can't remember who the person is right right it's very mind-bending when when someone will not let you off the hook and they won't end the conversation and also that they're ignoring the obvious because here you are ill and you are depressed and you're needing a lot of support. And instead, you're getting um, attacked and you're getting accused and you're getting questioned. And, you know, she could be holding you, not sort of swinging a light over your head, you know, like in this interrogation style. But yeah, after a while, when you're also conditioned, I think, within these groups to put things back on yourself, right, that you're the cause of something bad happening, then yeah, then suddenly that's on the table as a possibility when you didn't do anything. And really, if if anything should be happening, they should be apologizing to you for putting you in this situation. Anyway, yeah, it's so incredibly frustrating when you hear these stories and how young you were and being treated this way and just out of the goodness of your heart and out of your belief system and wanting to do good things. I'm very sorry that that you had that experience. And so what happened after that time, after she came to visit you and kind of made your head spin around a bit? I think that in my mind, I lived two different lives. I would go and, you know, and do everything I need to do and be compliant, but I was planning my exit. Uh, I was starting to think, you know what? Mm, I can't be with these people anymore. And as soon as I can get myself um, together, yeah. Uh, and, and physically well enough to travel, uh, get on a plane. And then the Gulf War broke out, so I um, couldn't fly across the Mediterranean. So I was, I was stuck between being sick and, and the war breaking out. So Okay, so I am wondering, just as an aside, when you would approach people and proselytize to them, do you remember what you were supposed to say? Wow. You know what? Each person had their own unique style. I remember that I um, had developed a way of of talking and catching people's attention that um, was very unique. And I watch myself to this day that, you know, um, I usually would compliment someone. Oh, interesting. Okay. I like your dress. I like your hair or... I would draw them, I would say something about them to get them their attention and to let them know that I admired them. Uh And then it was easier to kind of start talking to them and then eventually broach the subject of, so what are you doing tonight? Or have you ever read the Bible? Or um, do you love God? Or 
So um, mm-hmm. I, I kind of developed this this technique that um, that would get people's uh, attention and willingness to engage with me because I was complimenting them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it is actually a technique that a lot of people use. I'm sure you've come across it uh, with people who are trying to sell you something. Yeah, multi-level marketing was very much like multi-level marketing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and so you know these groups, and also the way people develop their skills, it, it comes from things that they've been exposed to sometimes, and also just sort of trial and error. What what works? But there is this idea of you know reciprocity. You give someone a compliment, you've given them something, and then they will give you something back. Either they'll like you more or they'll give you attention or they'll lower their defenses or they'll be open to your message. It's, yeah, it's very interesting. And so I wonder what it's like for you now when someone approaches you and suddenly gives you a compliment before really knowing you, it probably has an impact on you. Um, you know what? If, if they just give me a compliment and they move on, I'm fine. But if the, if it continues, then I'm then my my I'm keep like ah, um, what is this? And I might still do you know I, if I see somebody with really nice hairs, I'm like hey, that's you know I like that. And I, you know, and of course I'm moving on. But I'm genuinely it it was part of my genuine. Per, I'm an extrovert, so it's part of my genuine personality. Um, but also too with the group, and you've probably heard this before, love bombing was a technique and so um the person that you meet you're supposed to just just be enraptured with them and and feel just so loved by them and your first meeting with the group is usually so overwhelmingly everybody wants to know your name everyone wants to talk to you everyone's giving you compliments you're having so much fun and we always planned the best parties and the most engaging activities that anyone coming for the first time just felt like that they had just come into like just the coolest group of people ever. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And, and that becomes such a shock to the system when suddenly everything starts to turn and it's like whiplash because, right. Cause it's so wonderful and you're going to have this, this release of dopamine of all these yummy chemicals in your system feeling like this is a high and this is this incredible sensation I haven't felt before. And then I'm just thinking just the juxtaposition from that to being in this seedy place, this brothel, having parasites, being in front of the doorway in Brooklyn, as you describe it, like, how did that happen? How did you get from what you were just describing to that? And, and so I think also going back to what you were talking about, about being an extrovert and paying people compliments, it's all about the intention, I think. The behavior is nice. If people are nice to each other and they notice what's nice about somebody else or about their character or about something visually, and you say something, that's nice. Um, but your intention is not so that you can get something back from them. And that, I think, makes all the difference. Um, okay. Okay, so with just a few minutes left, I was curious when when you were talking about humiliation and self-esteem torn down, or were there other experiences that you wanted to make sure to highlight just in us sort of digging deeper into some of your memories and also how you got some of your self-esteem back? Um, one of the thing I, things I really want to dig deep into, and I think this is in a lot of things, it can be in a political political groups, it could be in terrorist cells, religion, multi-level marketing, is the concept of the one-on-one cult relationship. Mm. Um, Because the cult leader, Kent McKean, was not in everyone's life. But there was this pyramid system um, and something we called, uh, and they still have it in this organization, um, called discipling, where you would have kind of a senior mentor over you, and then you might have someone under you and so and there was a chain of command um and these you were to meet with this person weekly and if and 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 probably talk to them on the phone daily 
and you were telling them their your your deepest darkest secrets your intentions your desires you were recording who you had talked to how many people you had scheduled to come into the group who did that you think was was right for for you know the final conversion process um and receiving um at the beginning lots of love and encouragement but eventually these relationships turned into lots of interrogation and lots of um kind of just holding things over your head and I think what was hard for me years later when I tried to go to therapy is that therapy was seemed so much like these discipling sessions I could not I didn't know how to express myself because I it was too much like a, a discipling session. I couldn't figure out how I felt or what I wanted to tell you, the, the therapist, because I was expecting them to interrogate me and then just me give the answer. So sitting there with a therapist was, was frustrating um, for me. And that's something that people really need. And a lot of therapists and counselors don't understand. I, most of the people I've worked with have not worked with cult members before and and I have to I had to educate myself a lot and give them resources so that they would know I only worked with one person who understood this so that they would know that I had impaired critical thinking so I'm not just going to be able to tell you how I feel or how I think um um and that um I had a, a submerged identity my identity was had totally been hijacked at a young age. So I, there was no distinct personality or identity that I could even go back to because I had been intercepted in a critical time of self-formation and needing to build an identity. So I think it's really important that um, we have enough mental health professionals that understand what happens to people whose identities have been stunted um, sub- submerged, um, a compromise, uh, and how much critical thinking skills um, have, are, are taken away, and how much I, I, went, to gra- I went to went to graduate school kind of at the end of it, and I couldn't even form a complete sentence. It's an incredible thing that you mentioned, and and I I absolutely agree with you that I think that um, there are many people who who contact me, who I work with, who have spent many years with, without therapy or with going to therapy and having to teach their therapist. And sometimes therapists are wanting to be open to it and to learn. And other therapists just sort of avoid the subject because that's not what they know. And they'll kind of bypass it and want to focus on other subjects. So you're not really quite getting to the heart of why you're there, unfortunately. But I think it's, it is so interesting when you talk about a um, not being able to complete your thought because I'm just curious when you would sit down to write something or when you want to say something or a complete thought, was there all of this sort of self-doubt and self-talk and self-criticism that was going on inside of you that had been programmed or what was keeping you from being able to get from beginning to middle to the end of your thought, do you know? I think because we we had very little time alone to think. And then, of course, because of that, I did not trust my thoughts. Uh-huh, right, because if they were just yours, they weren't right. They, yeah, they weren't a script. It wasn't a script that I'd been given. So there was a lot of self-doubt. There was a loss of vocabulary because I was so into this group and our information and what we could hear and do was so... Uh, and read was so controlled um, that I might be having a conversation with someone and just think, I have no idea what movie that is. I have no idea what reference. I can't laugh at that because I have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I was actually just thinking about that idea of living in another world and that there are so many different levels of that that you went through. I think even just when you talk about your time in Africa, you were in Africa, but you weren't, you know, you, you were able to experience it more when you were on a college campus and interacting in that way, but you were in your own world in a separate world than the world that you knew. It was like sort of 
like yeah. a world within a world within a world. Just, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay. Anything else before we finish up? I think, I think just, um, recreating um relationships so our relationships were prescribed our friends were prescribed we were distanced from our families and um we could only date and marry inside of this organization and so that i think that's one of the things that kept me for for so long um in the organization and even after i left being able to fully deal with all of my experiences because um, my most intimate relationships had been controlled. So I had no, when I left, I did not have a childhood friend. I didn't have friends from college because all of my friends were from this group. So when I left, I had, I had the very weak family relationships before and even weaker because I would have been in this group for so long. And then all of my friends, they were, they could not speak to me anymore. No one. It's like, it's like, it's like you have all these friends and all this activity and you just, and then all of a sudden you leave and it's like, you never existed. And it's like, they never existed. And I was just alone. Now, I had married someone from um, the group who I, I just filed for divorce. It's, I need to, to be out of that situation. Um, so some people, you know, who got married in that system, um, whether you leave the group or not, unless that, that, those two people both get help and deal with that situation, you're still in some ways you're still living that cult life with this other person that you met there because the rules of your relationship were built on that system. And as I tried, and as I started to become my own person and have my own thoughts, because in their eyes, a woman was submissive to her husband. You were supposed to become one. There was no individuality. And so when I started to try to get therapy and start to deal with my experiences and become my own individual person. Okay. I thank you for getting into these memories. I'm sure they're not fun to think about, uh, but they, they paint a picture. They paint a picture of how you can be taken out of your life as you know it put in a situation that is so trying, so difficult, but out of your wanting to be connected to a higher power and wanting to do the right thing, that you are then driven to keep it going and keep going. But all along the way, it seems like there were times that you thought, okay, is this, is this really what I signed up for? And, and I think that it's so powerful that you that you bring that up that you started to have questions you started to have doubts and and you know i think people make sense of their reality at times or they're too afraid to really look at the reality at times but that i think being from from what you've said i think being able to give people this sense of really wanting to sit with those doubts and to not be afraid of them and to to know that it's something inside of you that's guiding you, that's speaking to you and showing you potentially a way out. Um, and that it's hard, it's hard to listen to it at first until I think it becomes sort of this booming voice in your head. And so at what point, just to finish up, at what point did those doubts just become that breaking point where you just said, okay, I'm done. I think when I uh, had my first child and the prospect of my child growing up in this system as I was starting to be um, uh, counseled on how to raise her and um, I was being told to spank at six months old and I was given a book called Baby Wise that um, where you're feeding a child on, you're denying food 
only on certain schedules. You're letting them cry um, it out. And I was miserable as a, as a young mother realizing that um, I was to condition my daughter to be prepared to be a slave. And I could not in good conscience see my child growing up into um, this system. And um, that's when I really said, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, because now here's this, 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 this baby starting to, to treat in ways that, who, that I didn't feel good about as a mother. And that just really, I think, you know, when you're dealing with, with other adults, I think sometimes you can just kind of be kind of callous. But when you're looking at your own child and you're like, really, if the child says it's hungry, I'm going to listen to these people who tell me that to not feed her when she's right. Right. Because then it's reinforcing this message early on for your child that what she's saying or what she's feeling or what she's expressing verbally or non-verbally doesn't matter. And that's a really dangerous message. And I'm really glad that you jumped in so that she would know that all of that matters deeply and it matters deeply to you. And that you didn't get to, uh, you didn't get to necessarily protect yourself as much as you needed to sometimes or wanted to at times, but you had the opportunity to protect her. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you again for, for sharing your experiences. I know there are many more to talk about, I'm sure, but you bring up so many wonderful points. And, um, and of course, I wish you well, and I hope we can talk again. Okay, thank you so much, Rachel. I appreciate it. One more thing before you go. Stacy was able to get into more of her story with us today, which I'm very grateful for. And she highlighted some of the details of being truly overwhelmed and feeling vulnerable, betrayed, used, controlled, and then having to pull herself out of that difficult situation. It's vital to get to that turning point, but it can be so hard to make that change and then to have to build your life back up. In part because of something Stacy talked about, that she had her self-esteem torn down. It's a very common experience when people get involved in cults, when they get involved in controlling relationships, or even when they're raised in abusive families. There's something about the nature of the controller that feels so consistently threatened by others excelling at things and feeling good about themselves. There's this sort of unspoken threat to them that they might be surpassed by the people around them. And because insecure people cannot tolerate the successes of others and the confidence of others and positive attention paid to anyone else, because it would somehow take something away from them or knock them down a few notches, that's what happens in these situations. And then it's easy to see why the leaders in these organizations use every opportunity to knock people down, to make them feel like they're disappointing them or disappointing the mission or that they're not doing things that look good in God's eyes or that they have always mm, sort of needed to try harder than they're trying and prove themselves more. You're constantly on thin ice. It's a terrible feeling. But there's an additional issue that's very important and happens to a lot of people in these situations. I've talked about it a little bit before, but I want to get more into it now, that while they're being tested and knocked down, insulted, shamed, pushed down, and mistreated by their controllers, they are often simultaneously given a sense of being more special than others by virtue of being in their group, being in that relationship, or being in that particular family or from that particular family. It's one of the things that's very hard when people leave. We talk about it a lot in the support group that I lead in my office in Los Angeles, that many people abused in these groups or in these relationships were also made to feel that they had the answers that everyone else didn't, that they had the right to look down on the rest of the world, that they were somehow protected and that they were specially chosen. But for many, there's also an insecurity that comes with that supposed superiority. 
Many know in their heart that it would take very little, if anything, to lose that status and be pushed away and discarded and berated if they ever did anything that made the person in charge feel like they were having divided loyalties toward them or when the person in charge said jump and they didn't immediately say how high, that that status could quickly be taken away as they've seen it happen with devastating and humiliating results to others who disappointed the person in charge. That is something that happens in these kinds of groups and especially in groups that are behaviorally and emotionally manipulating. It's an emotional roller coaster, no question, being elevated and devastated at the same time. It's extremely confusing and hard to know what's true at the end of the day about you, how you deserve to be treated, if you're good or bad or doing things that are right or wrong, and kind of where you belong in this world. That if you left, could you meet people face to face as equals or Would you feel that you're better than them or less than them or a little bit of both? And what adds to the difficulty is when you leave this, where you were possibly in the upper echelon or given special dispensation and respect and had power because of your status or association with the leader, that when you leave, even though it's much better to be out of that group or the relationship, you can walk around, as one of my clients used to say, feeling like you are a bit still like royalty and wanting and expecting to be treated a certain way, but that the crown you're wearing is invisible. And even if you were to tell people what you were the prince or princess in, it wouldn't translate into the world outside. They wouldn't understand that. And it would be a meaningless status, and sometimes, unfortunately, laughable. And this can be quite devastatingly painful. I tell you all this not to be, well, depressing but rather to give you a sense of the unique challenges of people who have lived these kinds of lives. As another client of mine said, imagine in one week alone, you are told that you are superior, blessed, enlightened, anointed, favored, special, specially chosen, and divine. And you're also told you are defective, dumb, lazy, deficient, evil, worthless, inferior, and a disgrace. No, I can't imagine. Being boosted up and slammed down only to be boosted up and slammed down again. And so many criticisms and so much constant criticism about you, you being evaluated and diagnosed in sometimes positive, I suppose, ways, but mostly negative, and over and over again. This particular client who told me about this said she realized she wasn't afraid of the leader of her fringe political group anymore and had had enough. She started planning her retreat and the speech she would give or the letter she would write to the leader with lots of very determined and wise and well-thought-out statements to make about why she needed to leave and what was wrong with this organization and how much of a sacrifice she had made and how none of the things they said they would do they were actually doing. And it was controlling and manipulative and all a waste of her time and effort and devotion. And then she went to another one of their mandatory meetings just to see if she was right. Just to see if she could confirm that she was correct about how she was feeling and that it was time to go. Throughout most of the meeting, the leader was going on one of his tirades evaluating and criticizing people publicly and going on and on and on and on and judging people's performance and questioning how much they were devoted to this or not and how much they had disappointed him and how much he had given and sacrificed for them and why couldn't they just try harder and pointing at people in the room and calling them names that were all childish insults. And she got up. Knowing she was sure of her decision now and feeling prepared with the words she had practiced over and over to say. And when he saw her stand up, which was not allowed while he was talking, he said, What are you doing? Wait, wait, wait. I know what you're doing. You're going to go do something selfish. You're going to go leave and you're going to make up some excuse, but it really is going to show that you care more about yourself then you care about the people here and this organization and all that we can do for the world. Admit it. Say it out loud. I'm selfish. 
I don't care about anyone but myself. And there was silence. And she said, no. She was shaking while she said this, but she still said no. And he said, no what? And she said, no, actually, that's not what I'm going to say. And she ran through the scripts again in her head and then realized really beautifully that she didn't owe him an explanation and she didn't have to come up with just the right reason and a justification that she could actually just instead of her well thought out and pre-planned script, just leave. So she looked at him and all she could think to say at the time was, you talk too much. And then she left. It was a perfect moment. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. <laughs>